Who the bloody hell's that? Should indeed. You're listening to the Corona Diaries, a sometimes random and often irreverent attempt to understand the psyche of singer Steve Hogarth. John, is there anything I you you wouldn't feel comfortable talking about? Well, a great deal. <laughs> Can you be more specific? Uh, well, anything that will come along in the in the general story, the intertwined story of of, of you two. Oh, I, I can't. Say, I you know, having led a life of blameless rectitude, I can't think of anything off right. the top of my head. I'm sure there might be something. Right. Fine. Rectal what? Hello, and welcome to chapter eighty of the Corona Diaries. And it's got a zero in it, which means we're joined by a guest as well. But we'll get to that in a second. We'll get to that in a second. Uh, H, how are you? Good morning, Anthony. I'm absolutely fine and very excited to have our guest with us today. I'm very excited as well, though I'm a little bit nervous. I'm more nervous about this guest than anyone I think we've had on before. Mm. Um, I don't know why, but we'll come to that in a bit. Um, but yes, I'm a little a little nervous. Before we get onto our guest, I'm just going to say one thing before we start. There's a couple of bits, bits of housekeeping we need to talk about, but we'll do that when we've introduced our guest. But one before we start. Can you remember we were talking about Annette Curtin and who was the other one last week? <laughs> who was the other one? Yeah, you started um, with somebody with a name that you um, knew and that got us onto Annette Curtin. I can't remember. All right. Because Sally Sturman's come back with Gloria Swether. Oh, Gloria Swether. Uh, which, which was circa 1974 in the Dandy Annual, and I'd not heard that one before, so I quite <laughs> like that one. I don't think it's quite as good as Annette Curtin, but I don't think it's far out. No. I went to school with a girl called Pamela Brain, and she used to write P. Brain whenever she wrote her name down, which made everybody go... <laughs> 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 And of course, we all went to school with a Richard Head, didn't we? But that's that's different as well. Uh, anyway, on to our guest. On to our guest. Um, and because, as I say, it's a, an episode with a zero, and it's on the big on the big uh, episodes, we like to get a guest in. And I'm really excited, but a little nervous because we have John Helmer with us, uh, looking very prepared and professional. Actually, morning, John. How are you? Hello. All smoke and mirrors. Not at all prepared. Not at all professional. Oh, I don't know. You've got a mic. You've got a you've got a pop shield. Headphones on. You look very organised. Far more organised than the two of us, if I'm being honest. That's just because I'm a gear slut. I just get on Amazon, and that's what I've been doing the last two years: just getting on Amazon and buying stuff, and then trying to work out how I can work it into a, a working life in some way. So I started a podcast. Actually, I just noticed I had all this sound equipment lying around, and. Um, Someone explained to me how podcasts work. I thought, oh, God, that sounds easy. I've got all the stuff already. It's cheap. So I did it. We've all been there. Mm. <laughs> it was Anthony that got there. me into it. He said, why haven't you got a podcast? And I said, well, what, what's a podcast? And he said, oh, Lord, 
leave leave it to me. <laughs> Just say yes. I went yes, and uh, and and that's how it started. I still can't get over your first comment, which was, "Will it make me any money?" And I said, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> "Follow wind on a good day. Yeah, it might be all right." <laughs> Eighty episodes in, but there, but there we are. Um, before we get on to chatting with John, two two things about new music. I listened to Peripheral Vision. Um, oh. Well, I listened to all of um, Colors Not Found in Nature, but uh, um, on the back of our chat last week and uh, enjoyed all of it. But Peripheral Vision is an absolute belter. Thank you. Really, Thank really, you. really enjoyed that. And I think there was quite a bit of feedback on the on the uh, the comments coming through about it as well. So, And I did let it all wash over me, and it was lovely just to let it let it settle. It's so it was well really mixed, good. that album. But the other big music news is obviously you've you've pushed a track out from the new album, haven't you? We have. Yes, we've uh, we've sort of semi-released it uh, in the sense that anyone who's pre-ordered the album uh, can now can now download a download of um, what is actually the first song on the album, uh, "Be Hard on Yourself," and that's also the song that we're going to include live in the forthcoming tour of the UK in November. Uh, so we thought it'd be nice to give people a taste of the album, but also um, anyone turning up at the shows would kind of know how it went um, instead of just standing there going, oh, what's this then? Um, and the reaction's been really, really mm. uncommonly strong. We haven't even had... Well, I, I, I guess nobody would be in any great hurry to send me the dissenting voices... But I haven't heard any. It's gone no. down very well. No, because I mean the 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 feedback on Patreon from the podcast from last week included quite a lot of comment about the new song, and it's all been hugely positive. And I listened to it when I got back, and it it hits you really hard. It, it's it's quite instant. Oh, I'm glad it's instant. I have no I, no way of telling, you know, because you, no. you you put these things together slowly over a period of time, and um, you 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 don't you know you really don't know whether they're instant or difficult or going to need twenty five listens or one or or what they are, and then someone will come back and go, "Wow, that's really catchy," and you go, "Oh, do you think so?" Or you'll have a really catchy one that leaves everybody cold. You know, you just don't know. It's a funny old thing. No, but it certainly hit, hit hit me full on, and it seems to have done from everybody else. So if you've not had a chance to listen to it yet, there's an email went out this morning as well with the details. So if you haven't seen the details on Facebook, but you've pre-ordered the album, you should have had an email this morning. So it's just an easy click um, to, to, to download, and, and then bang, there you are. So if you haven't heard it, enjoy. Um, on to John. Because uh, we have John with us, which is which is fantastic. John, um, we're going to try and cover some of the bits where the sto- you know, your story and H's story have intertwined over the years. But mm-hmm. you were a little bit ahead, weren't you? You kind of were in touch with the band a little bit before H was. Yes, it was after Fish had left, and they were looking around for obviously a singer and a lyricist, and couldn't get the two in one. It seemed at the time. Um, obviously they have subsequently in the shape of H but at that time they were I think they were thinking well we, we can't get both in one so let's look for a lyricist while we're looking for a singer and um, 
did, did it all of uh, publishing companies. I happened to have a kind of a solo project going where I was making house records, but with rather fancy lyrics um, and doing kind of remixes of people like Derek May from Detroit and the techno guy and another guy called Mike Wilson, who I think was Garage. And but flailing slightly and trying to find direction. So um, my publishers were kind of in despair of me actually getting down to deciding that we should release something I liked and so on. And um, they said, look, you've got all these songs or these demos you've been doing and they've got pretty good lyrics, you know. Um, so we'd send them around some other people. I said, OK. Um, and, and they came to Beryllium and they saw them and they liked them and we met up and I liked them and we got on and they um, told me about what they were doing. So I, I started working on stuff for season's end and and in the meantime um then they they managed to find their ideal singer which was steve so but so i kind of had me had me feet under the table so to speak when when steve turned up right and you said that your record company had sent some lyrics on yeah. So, and that and that really was the bit. I, I take it none of that worked its way onto Seasons End. That was just the style that that seemed to chime with, with the rest of the band. Oh, t- taxing memory now. I mean, the the people listening to the podcast won't won't be able to see this, but we're on Zoom and you can see a, a whacking great filing cabinet, blue filing cabinet behind. I can. It. It's got kind of a lifetime's worth of notebooks with lyrics in it, and if I was to go through there. I could probably tell you if any of them did end up on Season's End, but at the moment I'm not sure. I've got memories of just writing loads of stuff specifically for that project because they wanted to do something ecological, very topical. Mm. Uh, yeah, probably not still. quite as topical at the time, but... No, actually, no. I think less people were talking about it. So, you know, we're kind of lucky in that way. Um, meteorologically, of course, it very soon proved that we would have snow in England very soon. Um, but I don't think that takes away from the message of the song. No, no, I never, I never saw that as a literal lyric. If I'm being honest, um, so uh, you, you know, it wasn't. It wasn't. Well, that one was wrong. Then was it? No, I never, never quite saw it quite like quite like that. Um, so when can you two remember the first time you met then? Because obviously you were doing this sort of what eighty eight <clears throat> and eight. You were. It was early eighty nine, wasn't it? Yeah, the first time I, I set eyes on John's words was the was the same day I met Marillion because I went down to Pete's uh, house in Aylesbury to meet the band. I turned up a day mm. late, uh, but I did turn up. And um, we had a bit of a chat uh, out in the, in the garden because I was allergic to Pete's cats. And then um, we went into... Uh, Pete's garage where they'd got all their gear set up and they said um, we're just going to play we're just going to play some music that we've jammed and and we'd like you to sing these words on it and they passed me uh, the king of sunset town Um, and and I said is there a tune and they went oh no just make one up (laughs) so that was it so I stood there with a with a sheet of John's lyrics, a ragged man came shuffling through, and all of that, um, and and they 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 made a monstrous noise, and I I I tried to make sense of those two elements at once, 
And by the, you know, seven, seven or eight minutes later, we kind of had what the song became, really. It was, it was tweaked, but the, the essence of the song was already there then. So then we kind of knew that, the, that, that we had a kind of chemistry that was relatively effortless, um, which right in season's end was. And it's not as effortless these days, but it was it was effortless to start with, um, mainly because the band had already got so much music. They'd already kind of... They'd been through that process of jamming and leaving it on the shelf for a year and going back to uh, to turn the bottles and have a sniff at it and see if it was any good. Um so that I'm not really answering the question, am I? Uh, the so that was when I first set eyes on, on on John's art. Now, when did we actually meet? That's a really good question. Did you come down to the mushroom farm when we were down there? The mushroom farm. I think you didn't then, because we were we were that was down near Brighton as well. Um, oh. But I maybe you never came to that. We had about three or four weeks down there. And then we went to Hook End and recorded it all. You didn't come definitely down went, there. Definitely went to Hook End. Did you? And you I think there was something end. for that. So I think perhaps I did go to the Mushroom Farm because I, I remember, you know, going to lots of obscure places in the country <laughs> <laughs> to kind of meet you guys. We you used know. to do a lot of that <coughs> in those days. <laughs> yeah. The mushroom farm does see, seem very apt. No, well, somehow. no, it wasn't those kind of mushrooms. It was it, and and it had been a mushroom. He said horridly. Farm. <laughs> 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 and it, there were no longer mushrooms there, unless there were a few I hadn't seen under the bed or something. But uh, they turned it into. It kind of looked like uh, one of those prisoner of war camps, really. <laughs> But oh, it's they, all coming back now. Yeah. They, t- <laughs> they turned it into a studio. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I mean, that can't have been more than, a, I don't know, 10 miles from your house. So I, I'd, I'd be quite yeah. surprised if you didn't turn up there at some point. You know what, you know what they're like. They probably just forgot to tell you. So you're, you're still... you you. Producing to music, John, at that point, because obviously they had music at that point, didn't they? Yeah. Oh, so, yes. So yeah. you were writing because obviously you were specifically asked about Berlin, weren't you? The two to write something sort of evocative. That's right. Yeah. So I, I find that really difficult. You, you know, it, it was good to hear, Steve, that you're initially you clicked very quickly and it was effortless. I, I actually found writing the lyrics really effortful because I'm not used to writing lyrics to music or I wasn't at that point no neither am I I find that really yeah so it was really difficult I had to listen to stuff over and over again and I didn't have that much idea of what they wanted other than kind of you know I'd I'd sort of seen all the the fish stuff and he had a way of writing lyrics that you know they only scanned when he sang them it's like you know (laughs) you couldn't imagine anyone else putting those you know hand held over a candle in angst fueled bravado it rolls off the tongue for him, I think, for anybody else. It's difficult. So it wasn't like I could kind of I would copy that style, and that's not what they wanted anyway, and didn't know who was going to sing it. So you felt things had to have a bit of internal rhythm and bounce to them. 
Um, but I find it really difficult. I remember I, I borrowed a Walkman off my girlfriend, shows how long ago it was. Um, and I, I, I sat there with this volume cranked up, listening to these backing tracks, desperately trying to work out how to write lyrics to, to tunes. Because I'd, I'd always started from lyrics before. And I remember it being really difficult because when it came to the second album, I thought, right, I better start writing really quickly now before they do any music. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'd kind of, you know, get ahead of the game a bit and it wouldn't be so hard. Because it was a definite, I mean, to what you've just said there, it's a definite change in style. There's a slight gothic style maybe is, is one way of looking at it, or there's certainly a, a, a very style, a very definite style to what Fish used to do. And you're right, it, it was very, very wordy and 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 yet if you listen to something like berlin that's 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 got the edginess of berlin and as a and, mm. you know and when, whenever i go there and i really like the place i've i it, to me it's quite an edgy it's got a, a very edgy vibe to it and the lyric had a, a bit of the edginess that that i associated with the you know with with the place Hmm. Um, which seems, you know, did seems a huge departure from the from the the, the fish style of writing. So it really did mark a, a, a huge shift, um, you know. Certainly for anybody like myself who who because I went back and discovered Marillion because Season's End was my entry point. So I went back and discovered everything before then and found still found, you know, a lot of the older stuff was starting to to feel a bit dated, whereas the newer stuff felt edgier and, and 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 more in the moment uh, well that, that i mean that, that's an interesting a couple of things you say there like gothic i mean when i was kind of trying to get my head around what what is the style here i need to do i think i thought american gothic was a thing for me that i was interested in because i was a big hp lovecraft uh fan and edgar Allan poe and so on as well as the, all the kind of english stuff and I felt that kind of in rock and roll, American Gothic was a good touch point, at least for the place where sort of Marillion were, I thought, musically. So, I mean, I mean, yeah, that was interesting. I mean, you say very nice things there. Um, and about Berlin, I, I, I like telling stories in songs and having characters in songs, either singing from a character or about a character. So Berlin enabled me to do that, really. Um, I should say I've never been to Berlin, <laughs> uh, but I'd read a huge amount of books about Berlin and, of course, watched a load of films, Berlin, Alexander Platz. So I always thought it was an interesting place, and it was an interesting place at that time. It was. It was Sorry, an Steve, amazing place. Well, just, it, it was an amazing place in the sense that to get to it, you'd got to rattle down that corridor for what seemed like hours at 30 miles an hour or whatever it was, you weren't allowed to put the foot down. And whenever whenever I'd gone there, it was always foggy. So mm. you'd just go down this seemingly endless, dodgy road, which was a, made out of prefabricated slabs of concrete that the Third Reich had stuck down, I think. And it just went ba-dum, 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 ba-dum as you went over the, the gaps between the, the concrete slabs endlessly for ages and it was just grey, grey, grey and, um, you know, in the distance you could see the fences and the occasional machine gun post. <clears throat> and and then you would emerge into what felt like Knightsbridge. It was like Harrods. Everything <laughs> was just lit up like a Christmas tree. 
which was so weird. And it was just like an island of, you know, the West at its most flamboyant and decadent in the mm. middle of this grey expanse of nothing. Um, so that was always incredible, arriving, arriving there. And everybody was partying as though it was their last day. And I think that that was brought on by that that consciousness that they were surrounded by East Germany. They were surrounded by all of this oppression. Nobody knew. It was plainly an unnatural state of affairs. And no one knew when it was going to end, but they figured it was going to end at some point, possibly soon. And so everybody was was partying. You know when things get desperate and you reach for the gin? Yeah. <laughs> Six that's, o'clock. That's called Friday. Six o'clock most evenings. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was of course permanent... the, wall, the wall was coming down as well. Yeah. I mean, at, at that time, the wall came down. So that was a place in, you know, in, in change and crisis. Mm. Yeah. Just on I a think... lighter note, perhaps, um, a, a guy I was in a band called Pukki Snackenberger with, um, Nick Dwyer, who went on to be in Stomp. Uh, told me a story about going to Berlin to one of those um, epic clubs and being there and running into the wrong kind of guy, this kind of far-right skinhead bloke he got a conversation with somehow and the bloke started being really threatening with him and um, Nick said and then he turned to me and said, England is a small island full of shit. <laughs> <laughs> I won't have that. <laughs> not all of it. <laughs> I was definitely not agreeing with him there. Why think... well, there's a place in Harrogate. <laughs> yes. Oh, hang on a minute. <laughs> Harrogate's a bit impressed with itself. Uh, um, oh, oh. I think um, one of the questions, and I'm guessing you're not going to be able to answer this, either of you, but there's something about the handoff between the lyrics and the way that the two of you kind of seamlessly work together but almost at distance that is i find really really fascinating that that john will throw john you'll throw something out into into the world and and h will pick up on it and then it will end up being something that becomes very very important to a lot of people um you know in in that kind of cliched soundtrack of their life kind of um thing but i don't know if we're if if i ask you to describe how that works if either of you can actually tell me ah well on a practical level it's quite simple you know i'd i'd be in a different place and i I would fax lyrics to h and then he would make changes which you know we'd kind of talk about over facts it it, is amazing in that filing cabinet behind me i've got um loads of yellowing old faxes um of of us kind of going back and forth and saying oh you know h would say oh here's a a, 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 an extra verse i want to add does that look all right with you you know got like to change that bit there and it kind of worked by that sort of like that remotely but you know we'd met and, and got on so and in a way we have some similar kind of roots and touch points in our past I think you know having been in not completely similar types of bands but you know it was a similar type of level I think 
Yeah, because there must be some similarity between the Europeans and the Piranhas. Yeah, I guess. I always found John to be incredibly generous and relaxed with his art. Um, whenever I sort of weighed in and and added to or struck out lines that he'd written, you know, he never he never hit me with his handbag. I don't know if he went around the house screaming for a bit, you know, out, out of my out of my earshot before he came back. Ripping but... the paper from the facts, <laughs> shouting out to Kate, Good oh. God, look what that bastard's done now. Oh, please no, tell it wasn't me you like did. That. It, oh. it wasn't like that at all. No, no. I, 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 you know, I'm, I'm precious about it because I know lyrics are there to, you know, it's not poetry, it's there to, to serve a purpose, which is, you know, the rhythm and the music in a sense, as well as the sense. And I, I'm very conscious of the fact that you were the guy who had to stand up on stage and sing the stuff and then also take whatever flat came back or praise came back or feedback from the audience. So you, you were kind of up there. So in a way it's like, you know, like being a speech writer yeah. to a degree. Yeah. But they, they would not start out like that. You know, that, that, that was where you got to the point of me sending it off and thinking, oh, are they actually going to be able to sing this? It, it would start in a very different place for me, just in kind of you know personal preoccupations and so on. But that that is the. I mean, you kind of got to the, the nub of it there. That's the bit for me that is quite surprising because it would be fair to say that a lot of artists are precious. A lot of creative people are precious about things down to the word. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm not talking about being precious about a verse. I mean, they get precious down to the actual, the actual <clears throat> word or a comma or whatever it might be. Yeah. So that's the bit that that is is does seem slightly unusual. Not, yeah, I mean, I should say that I have positive. been, I have been that picky pedantic bastard in different circumstances. There was there was one thing where I'd, I had a demo that I'd, I'd written this song about Judy Garland, and uh, I, I got talking to a producer who wanted to to do a version of it. And he was saying, I, I just want to make one slight change to the lyric. I said, what's that? And I had a line um, about you sow a whirlwind, sow the whirlwind and you reap a star or something. He mm-hmm. said, I want to change that to rape. Um, and I said, absolutely not. And there was a long conversation after that and I dug my heels in. I, I just thought that, it was kind of, you know, gratuitous and I wasn't quite sure what it was getting at, but I didn't really like it. Well, not only that, uh, And then there was it, another occasion with I the mean, the me- where, it's um, All the cleverness it, it, and the meaning of it has gone then, hasn't it? Um, yeah. You know, you've yeah, missed the, the clever, point, you know, hasn't you? Cleverness. And the, the, the thing <laughs> had gone. But also I, I thought he was kind of, you know, skating on dodgy, on thin ice there because mm. he was trying to get a kind of bit of a free song out of something without actually following that meaning through. I don't know. Mm. Uh, there have been other occasions, but I, I just never found that working with Marillion and particularly with Steve because the vibe is different. Do you do you think it was partly helped or the relationships worked so well because you both kind of joined the band at the same time? Is there a bit of shared experience there? Does that make sense, that question? Well, I suppose we I were both outsiders, you know... Even though I joined the band, I felt I probably felt as much of an outsider as John did. In fact, maybe more so, because I was conscious of the fact that they'd had a relationship with John before I showed up. 
So in that sense, even though I joined the band, I still felt like the um, the grit in the oyster a little bit. Um, the grit in the oyster. Whereas perhaps John felt like that because he was outside the band. So we, we probably both felt like, certainly at the early stages, that we we both had um, a kind... There was an us, us the lyricists, and them the band feeling, perhaps. I don't want to overstate that, but it, that might have been yeah, something Yeah, maybe a bit of felt. it. And I think for them as well, they were in a place of kind of transition and change. And so I think that's why, I, personally, I found it a really exciting thing to be involved in because I, I, I'm not good at finishing things. <laughs> I really enjoy being in on the beginning of things and starting things up and that kind of rather creative period where no one quite knows what the shape of this thing is, is going to be, you know, mm. where it's going to end up. I think that's a, you know, an interesting place to be. Mm. Yeah, that was what drew me to them in the first place. I, I, you, when 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 I first when they first approached me, I I was thinking I can't imagine what I can do for this lot, um, and I more or less said that you know. So what is it you're expecting me to do? And they said, Well, we just want you to do what you do, and we'll do what we do, and we'll see what happens. We'll, whatever that is and so suddenly that the my expectations were turned on their heads on their head on it my expectations were turned on it's you can't say it my expectation <laughs> was turned on its head uh because um i was expecting them to say oh you know we've just sold half a million records or whatever and we sound like this do you think you can do that and I'd have gone, no, and that'd have been the end of it. But it was always presented as an experiment. You know, let's all see where what this will become, which of course makes makes the the whole process then a interesting and b honest and c a little bit exciting. And there's no doubt that if you think back, you both had uh, an enormous effect on the direction and the sound of Marillion, didn't you? I mean, it, it really shifted. And I'm not just thinking about Season's End, I'm thinking about the arc of those first sort of two, three, four albums. Probably moved far more and, and, and covered far, you know, different areas, got into far different areas in those three or four albums than the, the previous three or four. Well, our musical influences were, weirdly, they were kind of similar to the rest of the band, you know, the whole... Yes, Genesis prog thing. I'd been totally into that when I was 17 years old. But then I'd kind of left it alone and got into a lot of other stuff, um, you know, and got into all the 80s stuff, talk, talk, scritty, um, prefab sprout, uh, slave with the rhythm, you know, all, all of that. Um, I'd completely got into, and so that's kind of where my head was when I met the band. And uh, and uh, but I, then I was very conscious of this, this sort of, oh, this lot obviously really like Genesis. Um, so I think I was really then actively trying to trying to push the band as far away from that and as fast as possible. Um, and um, oh, what was I going to say? No, nope, can't remember the other half of that. 
Well, the only thing I was going to say there was that that seemed to go hand in hand with also what you presented and putting forward, John, because it all it all seemed to be part of a similar sort of move. It probably wasn't conscious, mm. but but there was definitely a, a departure and a move on, and and the two of you were you know were both both you know sort of pivotal in that, weren't you? Well, John was sending I- really interesting words that always had a really great, as he said. He always had a great rhythm, you know. Da di 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 da da di da di da 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 so it was a treat to get things that went dirty, 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 do, 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 because you could hang them on just about anything, you know, quickly, <laughs> bam, and get, you know, and stick a good tune on them. Um, so it was always a, you know, a really, a really uh, pleasant process. Sorry, what were you yeah. going to say, John? I, I was going to say that I, I can never, you know, racking my brains while you're talking, I can never think of ever at any point during that process having an idea about how I wanted to shape Marillion. <laughs> it was, you know, I, I felt I, I was conscious of the fact that for you that was going to be a job because, you know, you're, you're the lead singer of the band. It's assumed that, you know, this will be the Hogarth era and it will have certain kind of characteristics, you know, da 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 um, I, I didn't feel like that was my job. <laughs> and um, so it was the free... I kind of relished the freedom of, like, well, I'll just kind of write about stuff and tell stories and turn it into something that goes dum dee dum dee dum dee dum dee dum dee dum dee da <laughs> And, um, you know, that's, it was enormously liberating for me because I'd, I'd kind of started writing lyrics for the band, The Piranhas, which is punk, then for a kind of street busking band that I really didn't write an awful lot for because it wasn't my stuff. But I wrote a lot of kind of humorous and parody songs when we did our TV series. And then I kind of got into dance music and house music. And there the, the, the rhythmic, the, the lyrical constraints are quite harsh. You know, you have, it has to be very simple, direct and, and visceral. And I didn't really think I was kind of hitting that one properly. But starting to write lyrics for Marillion, it was like, wow, what a big canvas you have. Suddenly you can start kind of, it, it, it's like you've been, shooting um, panorama documentaries or something, and then suddenly you get to direct a feature film. It was widescreen. You know, you could go to Berlin, you could go kind of all over the place. You could talk about the climate and the sky and and all the rest of it. So it was great liberation lyrically for me. I'm assuming as from today you're going to change all of your social media bios just to say, I write things that go da 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 did that sound disrespectful? No, but, it, you know, it was a joy to work with John's words because, because of that, because, because they had a, uh, a poetic metre. Mm. Um, they, they, they were so easy to hang on music. So they'd, they'd been written with perhaps one, uh, you know, more than a few brain cells on, on, on their purpose, which was to be lyrics, as you, as you said earlier. Um, and to do that job, whereas I'm not very good at that. You know, I, 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 t- I tend to have streams of consciousness, 
that rhyme and and have a rhythm that's kind of, you know, a girl, a woman arrived in a panic at a picnic, it's better to give than receive, you know, and, and all of that. Um, there is a rhythm to it, but it's it's not it's not so easy to hang on something. Do you think that affected the melodies you wrote? Do you think the melodies for John's lyrics then are somehow different from the melodies you write for your own? Oh, oof. well, the melodies are always dreamed up on the fly. I never sit down at a piano and think, oh, that would yeah. be quite an interesting melody. They're, they're always scattered um, down a mic on the fly. You know, and then go in the bin if they're no good, and, and, and but but carry on, carry on to the next uh, stage. If 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 they are good, that's how we write. We it's very much a distillation process. You know, shit in at one end, nectar out at the other. You know, and every <laughs> and everything in between is is if it's still if it's still shit at the halfway process. It's in the bin. It's in the bin. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, we'll have a little break and we'll nip to a, a section of diary um, and then come back. So I've got a couple of other bits I'd like to, I'd like to finish off with. Um, and I'm trying to. I haven't, do you know what? I've not read the diary today, so I don't well, even know where we're going to go. Well, I've I believe a, I've I got believe chili in my head. I be, yes. Well, <laughs> yogurt. That's what you need for that. <laughs> um, no, and John's brought a bit of diary as well. Well, so yeah, I thought we'd story. pop that in near the end. Oh, you thought you'd pop that in at the end? I thought I'd do it a double okay. whammy for eight. You get two two little bits, two little reminiscences. Yeah. Yes. Well, well, yeah. I'm in Chile. Uh, um, I'm in Chile and Santiago. I think to start with, with the British Airways crew, we're not supposed to drink, but we do. <laughs> we came in over the Andes. The hydraulics were leaking. The pilot was being sick into a bucket, and we were all pissed. That's what the um, air steward said to me. <laughs> I said, bloody hell, I'm glad I'm not a nervous flyer. And the stewardess went, bloody hell, I am. <laughs> oh, Christ. <laughs> I'll let you do that then, voices included. <laughs> Here it comes. Thursday, 23rd of June, Santiago, Chile. Day off. The approach to Santiago Airport consists of a sudden drop down from above the Andes onto what appeared to be a plateau. We remained in cloud almost until touchdown. God knows how they landed the aeroplane. Top marks to the pilot for making it feel so straightforward. We emerged from the airport to heavy grey skies into which black mountains rose, their peaks obscured. Until one month ago, it hadn't rained here for six years. A month ago, it began raining hard, day and night, until today. There has been widespread flooding and many buildings and bridges have been destroyed. We drove by bus along country roads until we approached Santiago. First impressions were of a gold rush town. Shabby, single-storey Wild West buildings lined the main road, exuding a frontier vibe. I was half expecting to see Clint Eastwood, 
poncho clad and hat pulled down against the weather, riding into town towards us. Strange anomalies surprised us as we arrived at the edge of Santiago. A large shop proudly displaying the sign Ferreteria O'Higgins. And later, my favourite, La Casa del Gasfitter. After what seemed like an age, we eventually arrived at the Intercontinental Hotel Santiago and checked in. Everyone here is friendly and clearly excited to have an international rock and roll band in the hotel, so maybe it doesn't happen very often. We were invited into the bar for complimentary cocktails and I sat with our guitar tech, Guy, drawing pictures of cartoon cats trampolining so I could fax them to Sophie and Niall. There was a TV interview at 10 o'clock, so I killed time exploring the hotel until then. We drove to the TV station and Mark and I did a very brief spot with some chat person before leaving to go to a bar called Publicity, where I had grilled salmon for dinner and said hi to various members of the British Embassy staff who were there for whatever reason. They all seemed pretty eccentric to me. We returned to the hotel bar around midnight and I joined the crew for a drink. I felt so tired and ill by now that I donated my beer and went to bed. Woke up around ten in the morning to the sound of construction work banging, clattering and the relentless grind of hammer drilling on some not-too-distant wall or floor. I felt quite ill and drifted in and out of sleep until around two. We had a press conference at 3.15, so I showered and managed to rebuild a shell of myself in time for the onslaught. Question one. Do you consider yourself to be progressive or regressive? Off to a good start then. After the press conference ended, I went back upstairs for a phone interview in Tim's room before changing to another room further away from the construction work. In the evening, the band went out to a couple of bars. I was constantly recognised, signed autographs and had my photograph taken. We returned to the hotel bar and I joined a table with a British Airways aircrew of four stewards and two stewardesses. They were all from the north of England and their accents made a refreshing change to hear. The boys were all gay and great value to be around. We're not supposed to drink, you know, when we're flying. Not supposed to, but we do. We were coming into Santiago over the mountains. The pilot was being sick into a bowl, the hydraulics were leaking and the cabin crew were all pissed. It's OK, I said. I'm not a nervous flyer. Bloody hell, I am, said one of the stewardesses. They're leaving Chile tomorrow, so they'll miss the show, but they'll be in Rio next Saturday, so they're all coming to that one instead. I didn't stay up too late. I still felt ropey and tired. We arranged to meet up at 12.30 tomorrow to go into town for some lunch with Francesco, our local promoter. Tuesday, 28th of June. Sao Paulo, Rio de Janeiro, Metropolitan. Woke at 9.30 and spent the next hour showering and packing for checkout at 10.30. My phone bill wasn't the horror I was expecting, only $66.00. We climbed into the minibus for the short ride to Sao Paulo City Airport, where, after a short wait, we boarded the shuttle to Rio de Janeiro. Climbing down the stairs from the 737 aircraft, 
It was immediately apparent that the air is warmer here in Rio, despite low cloud and showery rain. There is still much magic in the place. The very topography of it, with its dumpling and coconut cake hills, seems strangely mystical. The ever-present minibus, which seems to arrive as if by magic everywhere we go, took us to the Rio Palace Hotel. And here I am. For the second time in my life, I'm enjoying the heavenly sensory wash of the air in my room, scented with fruit, flowers and the sea, as I listen to the waves crashing in on Copacabana, which sweeps before me in a floodlit arc, it's now 8pm, along with the bustle of night traffic and people out walking along the wavy patterned pavement promenade. Even now, in midwinter, the air is warm and heady. In the summer, I heard the boom of drums in the distance pumping out samba, but tonight only the waves and the traffic. As we drove back from Soundcheck at the Metropolitan, we came along the coast road and watched massive waves crash violently up against one another in a cauldron of white foam. Even the sea here is somehow massively alive, like the people and the city. I've never been anywhere that can touch this place for natural spectacle or visceral life-affirming energy. Rio is a reward I can't remember earning. Seated in the bar downstairs this afternoon, I had many flashbacks. Roger Taylor, Queen's drummer, leaning against the bar, Roland Orzabal and Kurt Smith, Dave Stewart and Chucho, now my friend Mershan, Annie Lennox, pale and straw-hatted, returning from some excursion or other to buy sandals with Chucho's wife, Anne-Marie. I sipped a beer, foregoing the complimentary Hyperenias, and gazed around, pondering with Pete T how many ghosts had passed through this lobby along with ours. You name them, they've probably been here. The old Rio Palace is looking slightly shabby at the moment. The carpets have started to smell a little dusty. There are plans for an imminent refurbishment of the hotel, so if I should ever return, then perhaps I'll hardly recognise the place. I suppose I was lucky to get in here now. I should talk about tonight's venue. It's quite something. It's called the Metropolitan, and it's housed within a shopping mall. It's a huge club with a capacity of around 7,000. The stage is massive, and the place exudes a money-no-object feeling. All the technology is state-of-the-art. There must have been 15 grand's worth of TCEQ for the stage monitors alone. The stage sound was clear and defined, and Jeff Hooper, who's mixing out front sound for us on this tour, said the out-front technology was similarly fine. Alan Parker had a bit of a day re-rigging the lights for the TV cameras. O-Globo TV are shooting the show. There are manned and automatic cameras zooming about but it's the backstage area that takes the cake. Adjoining the dressing rooms are two jacuzzis. I arrived at tonight's gig to find Pete bubbling away. Between soundcheck and show, we returned to the hotel and I called home before taking a stroll with tour manager Tim along Copacabana, which feels noticeably safer than in 1990, when I was constantly pestered for money by laughing street kids tapping at my pockets. We wandered along the promenade, past cafe stalls hung with coconuts, and stared out at the floodlit beach. The palms, the waves, and the passing characters, 
joggers, lovers, old friends chatting the night away, every race of people and every perspective. We walked back in the middle of the road where market stalls sell football shirts, leather goods, jewellery, your name on a grain of rice. Remember that? Wood carvings, bikinis and sarongs. We didn't stop to buy anything. For me, the show turned out to be a strange one. The band sounded a little self-conscious of the cameras and recording equipment. 32-track digital. I felt I was over-singing a little, and two songs before the end of the set, my voice cracked and deserted me once again. We played this strange engine for a first encore, which killed the atmosphere somewhat. Very few people in Brazil have heard the album. We redeemed ourselves with Incommunicado for Encore 2, but I left the stage shaking my head in recognition of the fact that my voice was still far from right. I cheered up a lot after both Alan and Jeff came back to say it had looked and sounded great. I cheered up some more when Tim showed me one hot jacuzzi, full of bubble bath, ready and waiting for me. I undressed, climbed in and luxuriated beer in hand, bubbling away my aches and pains alone. What a way to earn a living. Back to Rio Palace at three in the morning, I leant against the balcony, watching the sea and the still busy promenade, pondering the tragedy of being alone in the one place on earth that God made for the sole purpose of shared awe and romance. We had to be up at 7.45, so I tucked myself up and was in a deep sleep at 5am when I was stirred by a knock on the door. Unbelievable. The world conspires to stop me sleeping. I didn't have the strength to get up. I called security and asked them to please investigate. I guess I'll never know who it was, or why. And we're back. Um, and I was thinking, I've been thinking actually, John, this is the second time we've met. He's oh now my God. very <laughs> blank faced at me. He says this to me all the time. Um, oh, yes, of course. I can see now when I look past the microphone that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Remind me. But you wouldn't remember. You wouldn't remember. So, in there was a Holidays in Eden launch party at the Borderline Club in London. Oh, yes. Yes. And you were there. And I had a Holidays in Eden cassette, an EMI Blue sampler cassette that I'd got from a friend who, who had a record store. Right. And the EMI rep had come round with the Marillion uh, sample thing for the album. And, and, he, and he knew I was a fan, so he gave me this thing. So I brought this tape along and I, I got the band to sign it because it, it was a small small club, informal night. It was only a fan club night. Uh, and and I approached you and asked you to sign this as well, and you were somewhat taken aback that anybody would want you to sign something. Yes, well, so I've got this cassette yeah. with six signatures on. Wow, yours included. Yeah, well, that yeah, I, I cultivated an an aura of fake humility, and obviously it worked. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I, I did. I did sign a few autographs, but. You know, not so many. And, um, you know, occasionally people would, would come up to me at gigs, you know, particularly kind of like German or um, Dutch fans and say, you are the texter of the band. 
what's your name there? <laughs> and, and stuff like that, yeah. Send us to text her. I don't, really, I don't even know how I worked out that you were you. It, somehow somebody must have said, oh, John's here, or, or probably somebody from the stage said, oh, and John's here, and he's over there. Ah. And, and were you working with... No, the band at the time. no, no, no. I was just, I was just uh, another one of those fans that had popped down for the event, um, and and had been so knocked away. Se- Seasons End had been such a big album for me, and I was so knocked yeah. away with it that you know, and I was fascinated by the lyrical side of it as well. So I it was like, oh right, okay, well you know, he's in the band. He's pretty much he's oh, he's, well, he's he's, oh. he's 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 Bernie Taupin over there. I'll go and I'll go and tap him up for a signature. Let's hope for Pete Sinfield. Yeah, but yeah. Brilliant. Well, I'm I'm really glad that um, that worked out and that uh, I wasn't rude and told you to bugger off. Oh, no, I didn't say you weren't rude and told. No, but no, you know, you know, you know, no, you were very gracious and very nice Thanks. from what I can from what I can remember. Glad to hear it. So, um, just to start to wrap it up a little bit, the was it was it a fairly seamless transition? Because obviously, it would be fair to say there was more of your lyrics on the earlier um, records. You know, from in the postfish period, than on the later yeah. ones, was it was it a was it just a fairly natural transition? As you know, has was it ever talked about, or was it just you kept putting things forward, and 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 the things that worked in worked in? Was there any kind of plan behind it all, or did it just really natural? Well, for me, it was. I kind of had an assumption as soon as I realised that Steve was starting to write lyrics that there would be a changeover at some point and he'd kind of end up picking up all the lyrical duties. But this kind of worked itself out uh, album by album and the, the kind of proportion shifted. That, that was my perception anyway, Steve. Is that was the same for you? Yeah, my perception was that whenever we came to make, you know, start jamming and try to write a new piece of work, I would um, use whatever I felt because of the way we do write. The 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 lyrics that end up on our albums aren't necessarily the best lyrics. They're the ones that that hap, you know they're the ones that happen to be married with jams and worked. You know that that then somebody listened to and oh quite like that. What's going on there? And it's still a slight frustration to this day that. that uh, I can I can have a couple of uh, of sets of words that I'm very very pleased with, but never see the light of day. I keep trying them and I keep trying them, and they never quite hang on anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's never as straightforward as here's what I want to say. What are we going to do? There's always a little bit of cloud a cloud of options, and there always was from day one. Um, and over time, um, I, I, John didn't send so much stuff through. And that, maybe that's because we weren't hustling you and go, have you got anything, John? Have you got anything? Um, but even now, if you, know, if you had anything that you thought, that could be great for the boys, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm up for having a look at it and putting it in the folder. So there was never a point in in my mind where, oh, I don't want John getting involved in this anymore. It's all about me now. I never had that feeling. I just wanted to use whatever was whatever I felt was strong or intriguing 
irrespective of whether John had written it or I had. And even even when we came to to uh, put sounds that can't be made together, I found I found a really old lyric of John's in a folder uh, that became "Poor My Love," that was "Poor My Love." Mm. Really, I d- I'm not sure I changed. I don't think I changed a word of that. I think I think it just went down more or less the way you'd sent it, and you'd probably sent it in 1990 or something. Mm. Um, and it had sat there all that time. And there's still, I think there's still two or three that you sent way back then that are in a folder. And I'll still cast an eye over them whenever we're, whenever we're plugging away, jamming. So it ain't over necessarily. It's just that as time's gone by, John's got busy with other things. And um, I've I've had less to choose from from him. Mm. Uh, That's my perspective. Because I I kind of felt that I don't know. I, I I sort of assumed that it was a transition really, and you'd become the band's lyricist, and then that was kind of something we did. And um, I don't know. I I probably do occasionally come up with stuff that I could send over more, but you know, I think I asked. Um, Steve Rothery at one point uh, do, do you, you're in the market with some lyrics and um, I think he said well, we were about three years away from our next studio album so I thought oh, I made a mental note to get in touch nearer the time and you know maybe crack some stuff off um, and then forgot about it <laughs> the mental notes and then I just saw the other day oh you've got another album coming out oh god missed the boat on that one so I'll be a bit better about it this uh, this time and I will send stuff through as it as it comes along. Yeah, if you've if you've anything you think, ooh, really pleased with that. And and yeah. you, and you haven't got an outlet for it yourself, then then Well that's the thing, you see, I'm starting to write for a little project I've got at the moment. I did this um did this blog of reminiscences about my earliest years encounters with music called the Noted Blog. It's up there. And you can find it through Facebook and stuff. Um, and then as I started to work on that, I thought, well, I could turn this into kind of spoken word pieces rather than, you know, written bits. Mm. And then when I started to do that, they started to turn into somewhere between lyrics and poetry. Mm. Um, never been that great on my voice, but I, I, listening to things like George, George the Podcast, George the Poet's Podcast, I thought, well, there is a way to, not that it'd be anything like that, there is a way to combine kind of sound design and beats and words and the odd bit, bit of music and so on and make it about this kind of no, noted project. So that's what I'm working on at, at the moment. Mm. So a lot, lot of lyrics are going into that, but, you know, I write stuff that wouldn't suit that as well. So. Yeah, well, you well, heard I'm, it I'm... here first, folks, um, you know. Come 2025, 2026, when we get to the next Marillion album. <laughs> yes, and I know set your alarm. Really think about the next one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it will... Can I also put in a plug for the, um, the the Piranhas box set, which has just been, you know, this is for all the completists of the world who, who can't go to sleep at night unless they know they've got absolutely everything that was recorded by every obscure band of the 70s. Um, uh, I think it's Anagram Records have just released a box set of, of The Piranhas, which is almost everything we ever recorded. Wow. A lot of unreleased stuff that was demos. and um, People can get that now if they're at all interested. 
Well, I'll, I was I was going to say to you because the other thing we haven't been to the seventies. Well, we haven't touched on the fact that you have two podcasts as well, don't you? Um, I do. Um, yes. The, well, for on. anyone who's who's a teacher or an educator or a trainer, um, which is what my podcast's about. There's the Learning Hack podcast where I interview the people who are making the future of learning. Comes every fortnight. Um, available wherever you get your podcasts and on YouTube. And also on the YouTube channel, The Learning Hack, search up the Learning Hack on YouTube. There's my other podcast, which started Great Minds on Learning, which is about learning theorists through the ages. And that covers everything from the Greeks to the geeks, from Aristotle to the present day. And I'm doing that with Donald Clark, who is a world authority on uh, learning theory and learning science. From the Greeks to the geeks is a good line. From the Greeks to the geeks. That, yeah. that was a good line. I like that. Could be a lyric, then. Uh, yes, yes. Do you want that one, Steve? <laughs> no, well, they know you've written it now. I would have nicked it. I can always edit that edit bit that out. Edit that out and, and nick it. it. <laughs> Outrageous. <laughs> this is how it works, folks. This is how it works in the background. No, um, I wouldn't do that. We'll finish. When, when we were having a, a, a brief email exchange about setting this up, uh, John, you said you'd, you'd written a little article about um, you were invited to a fan club a convention gig, weren't you? Yeah. And you, yeah. you went and, and joined the band on stage and you uh, you wrote a little piece about that experience. That's right. I was writing a regular column for a magazine called Brighton Viva, um, which sadly uh, went away all flesh in uh, the pandemic because it was a lifestyle magazine and nobody had a lifestyle anymore. <laughs> uh, and this particular one was about me taking part in the Marillion uh, Weekender and it's called Tumble. So we thought we'd finish with that as, as a little bit of a break uh, from the normal episode. So we'll, we'll, we'll pass on to John to, 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 to do that, that little bit of reading. And then from there, I imagine it'll go to a croomcast, mm. of, of which I've no idea how you're going to follow that age. Well, I never know, but something tends to come to me halfway through. Halfway through? Yes. Okay, well, half, halfway through this particular story, the thing that will come to you is probably the floor. Yes. Um, at speed. Um <laughs> But we'll get to that. So, yeah. ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to pass over to John Helmer uh, to, to read a, a, a piece he wrote called Tumble. And, John, thanks very much for, for uh, being available to us at this time on a Monday morning. Uh, it's, it's really appreciated. It's been lovely to see you. Well, thank you for helping me to kickstart the week in a very different way. Normally I just sort of drink coffee and cry for the first hour of Monday. You see... You see what we've saved him there, Ant? I know, I know. Public service, this. Public service. <laughs> thank you so much, John. Thank, that was well, thank uh, you. heroic. Thank you. Well, let's do it again. Would you be up for doing it again? Not, not soon. It's all right, don't panic. We begin our descent into shiphole and my stomach flips. For perhaps the tenth time on this short flight, I take out a dog-eared sheet of paper and unfold it on my knees, mumbling the words printed there to myself like some good luck spell purchased from a wayside gypsy. However, after the wheels have found the rumbling asphalt and the overhead lockers sprung free with a fusillade of clicks, still nothing of what I read remains in my head which is a bit rich, considering I wrote these words. 
I think back to the call that started all this. I was box binging narcos on the sofa at home when Steve Hogarth, also known as H, lead singer of neo-progressive rock band Marillion, for whom I wrote five albums worth of lyrics in the 90s, called John, I've got this crazy idea. A firm no would have been more to the point than my wheedling excuses. But I've never played with you on stage, Steve, or anywhere else for that matter. And I haven't played anywhere at all for a year, plus I don't know the chords. Which H deftly batted aside. We'll send you a chord chart. So here I am, being ferried in an ominous black limo towards the crazy idea. Marillion hold these weekenders for the faithful, who are extremely faithful. They take over a whole holiday camp and stage mega gigs three nights on the trot. It's on the final night of this run at Zeeland Centre Parks, Holland, that I will join them on stage for a song I wrote the lyrics to almost 20 years ago. Lyrics I'm now struggling to remember. Not that the musical side is something to feel any more confident about. As a guitarist, I'm strictly class of 77, three chords max, four if I'm feeling jazzy. But Marillion songs have weird scales, lots of finger picking and, fuck's sake, time signatures. At the sound check, I hover nervously backstage, eating sandwiches and trying not to get in the way. Mark, the keyboard player, comes back complaining of the heat on stage and doors are thrown open to admit blinding sunlight. I step outside and see a horde of the sit-up-and-beg bikes people use to get round the park. The urge to take one of these and pedal quickly away is almost ungovernable. The sound check is awful. I feel nervous on such a huge stage and shuffle around like an amateur. We all hope it will be all right on the night. Come the night, I stand in the wings, waiting to go on as the lads belt out the number before mine, built-in bastard radar, and a roadie hands me the guitar I am to use. Suddenly the music stops, there is a movement in the crowd near the front of the stage, and all hell breaks loose. People are running around backstage like headless chickens. What's going on? It emerges that H has fallen off stage. A ten-foot drop. My first thought is, oh no, I hope he hasn't broke anything. My second is, great, I won't have to go on. But 15 minutes later, after the paramedics have checked him over, H bounds back onto the stage, flashing his trademark maniacal grin. My song is called, You Couldn't Make This Up, Tumble Down The Years. And as I walk out, I realise that it doesn't matter at all how well or badly I play. I've already nailed it just by showing up. There is no high on earth, legal or otherwise, like 3,000 people rapturously pleased to see you. And the song goes fine. How could it not? Later, firmly anchored to the bar, I am washed over by a tide of happy Marillion airs, telling me how much my lyrics have meant to them over the years, how my words changed their lives, and even, in the case of one couple, showing me matching his and hers jewellery they had custom made for their wedding with lines of mine engraved inside. She took my hand and said, let's go together. You and me against the world A 
And so we stuck it out through still and stormy weather And so we tumbled down the years I took her hand and said let's go together Just you and me against the world Let's go together Let's stay together You and me against the world Oh, we'll come to find the key behind it all Yes, we'll come to find Stop to see if we were still in step. We never checked each other's eyes to see who lived in there behind them. And down the years, we disappeared. Let's go together Say now together You and me against the world And though we never found the key behind it all I think we came to know the meaning of the fall Thank you for subscribing, Michael Welsh And Ian Drain as well Let's go together Let's stay together We'll purple down the years We'll purple down the years We'll purple down the years <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Corona Diaries. It featured Steve Hogarth with the insights and me, Ant Short, with the questions. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider subscribing and maybe leaving a review as this will help others find it. You could even share with other like-minded souls, should the mood take you. This has been an A Short Stories production. <laughs>